And a very fine good evening to you, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 114. Uh, and uh, we are getting ready to discuss a really cool moment that we have, uh, I know, been kind of looking forward to for a little while. Uh, and that is, of course, that very tense moment in the Hall of Fire between Bilbo and Frodo about the ring. Um, and in which, in particular, uh, I think it's it's a, a, a passage that I think a bunch of well that I I feel certain that Peter Jackson was misreading and I think I think a lot of people do I think it's 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 an easy passage to make mistakes about um, and uh, so I've been kind of thinking about some new ways to think about this passage so I'm excited to talk about it today um, I just a couple <laughs> am I sure we'll make it that far Lincoln it's the first slide so I feel pretty confident that we're going to make it that far though I do have a notes and queries slide beforehand so you know I suppose it's a less than 100% chance but I'm still pretty confident anyway um so, uh, but very quick announcements. Uh, first, just an, uh, another quick reminder about our two regional moots that are coming up, New England moot and Middle moot. New England moot on the 29th of September in Amherst, Massachusetts, and Middle moot on October the 12th uh, in Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, I've been delighted to see uh, re the registrations rolling in for those. Uh, there's uh, still time to register. Uh, so I want to encourage you for that. Also, our fall semester at Signum University is now uh, in its second week. It is still possible to, uh, in, if you want, if you still wanted to audit a course, it's still possible to get in uh, up to the end of this week. The the registration closes forever uh, this Sunday. Um, but if you still wanted to get in, it's still possible. So I wanted to make sure to point that out. All right. Um, then uh, let's see how late will things go at Middlemoot. Um, well, so the moot itself doesn't usually go very. That's a good question. The moot itself doesn't usually go very late, uh, but we then usually do something afterwards. Um, it is very. I don't know exactly what the plans are, um, but we um, uh, we generally go for dinner afterwards and then you know kind of hang out for a while. So um, it's very. Uh, likely that we'll be uh, doing some activities. I think, uh, Mad Violinist, I think it is most likely to be then, that is at the dinner after the end of the moot, uh, that we're going to probably try to uh, uh, do our reenactment of the seating arrangements in Elrond's Hall. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know how long that's going to take, but that can't be too quick, right? Um, anyway, um, so, uh, so yeah, um, the life, hmm, that's a good question. Cheapest way to get from Boston to Amherst. I mean, it's a straight shot out route too. So, uh, it's, uh, it's not that far to go. Um, I would think probably the bus is the fastest, no good train line or anything that goes all the way out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, oh yeah, the other thing I was going to say, Mad Violinist, there's a chance that there might be something happening on the Sunday afterwards too. Might do, I'm not 100% sure about that yet. Still working on that. Um, but it's, 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 a, it's a more than 0% chance that there might actually be uh, something else, more, happening that weekend. Um, the festivities may continue. Who knows? Um, 
Uh, and yes, there is uh, there are activities on Saturday as well, uh, the day before the Sunday moot. So it's a, the New England moot is, is a little unusual because we're holding it on Sunday. We usually hold them on Saturdays. So we're going to have a little bit more happening on Saturday, like afternoon and evening leading up to it, and probably not so much afterwards on Sunday night. Um, but anyway. Okay. Um, so, yeah, lots of good stuff. So, Lilith, I'm sure... We can figure, you know, one of the things I wonder, Lilith, is if it might be possible to find somebody else who's driving out you could carpool with uh, from Boston. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, uh, maybe it might be a place where we can sort of post that or something. There's got to be somebody else driving out from the Boston area. Um, but anyway, in fact, I, know, I might know one or two. Anyway, send us an email and we'll maybe see if we can connect you with somebody. All right. Um, cool. There we go. Look, Tug McGill says that Sparrow has a carpool thread in the forums. I figured somebody must be on top of that, and it is hardly surprising that it would be Sparrow. So very good. Okay, cool. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the two class. That's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so <laughs> funny story. I am delighted to be able to speak with you tonight. Um this afternoon, people were teasing me, of course, for being uh, 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 late, as usual, tonight. Uh, my son, uh, uh, my son Matthias, who is streaming on Tuesday afternoons at 4.30, likes to be extremely punctual. Like, he's always, like, setting up way in advance and being ready to hit start stream right at the stroke of the time. And I'm like... You know, people are going to think you're adopted or something. I mean, it's really weird. But anyway, he does that. But today he was 15 minutes late and it was totally my fault because um, he streams from my computer and I wasn't home. Uh, I was off at the dentist having horrible things done to me. Um, and I was late coming home because they took way longer to do They were so much enjoying that that they took extra time doing it. But also the other upshot is I had like my, you know, it was like my entire half of my face and like my entire tongue was completely numb. So I spent all afternoon and the early evening like barely able to talk. I'm like, can't speak and like drooling and stuff. And I'm like, this is going to be an awkward class if I can't, uh, if I, I, I was talking very, very strange. But I finally uh, got, got everything together here. Uh, I was delighted that my face came back to me here in the last uh, hour or two. It uh, might not be much of a face, but it's, it's the best I got. So delighted to be able to speak with you uh, here this evening. Um, at, no, no, trifle, no drugs. Unfortunately, it wasn't one of those situations. Just the numbing stuff in the face. That's uh, uh, really kind of the worst of both worlds, really. Um, now, it's true, Mad Violinist, I probably could have given you a good sample of Old Entish. <laughs> it would have sounded like Old Entish, most likely. Arumba, rumba, torombe, luna. Yeah, it's exactly what it would have sounded like uh, had I uh, been trying to do this lecture about two hours ago. Um, anyway, okay. But tonight, we're going to look at that tense moment. Now, first... Uh, I wanted to address this. There was a really great discussion on this. There's a long thread on this uh, on the uh, questions board, but I wanted to, to kind of weigh in on it because I thought it was a really good question. In particular, uh, what my favorite thing about this question um, uh, by Anthony Lawler is that uh, Lawler rather is that this was um, this was a it, I, this is really good like outside the box thinking. I really uh, appreciate uh, how Anthony is here. Um, you know, just kind of like. 
not taking for granted things that it's easy to take for granted, right? And I think it's a really good way to be thinking about this stuff. Um, anyway, so he was saying, listening to episode 67, um, which I'm, I was trying to remember, like, where on earth were we in episode 67? I don't even remember. Um, it occurred to me that Gandalf makes certain assumptions about the effect of the One Ring on its bearers. We know that the Nine Rings turn their mortal bearers into wraiths, and have around 700 years at the outside to achieve this. Gollum, on the other hand, possessed the one for around 500 years, and was still solid, even if stretched, and Bilbo felt stretched after only 60 years. Frodo holds it for less than two decades before his transition to wraith form begins, but there are extenuating circumstances. In Lotro terms, the transformation process would have to have a very long induction period that is easily interrupted. Gandalf also suggests that hobbits, including Gollum, may be more resistant to the effects of the One, on the basis that Gollum is not a wraith. I don't see enough data points to support Gandalf's assertions about the action of the One on its bearers. Extended lifespan alone isn't conclusive proof that the bearer will become a wraith. The, the Nine, that is the Nine Rings, are Nine for Nine, while the One appears to be 0 for 5 at the time of its destruction. Isildur, Gollum, Bilbo, Frodo, and Sam. Okay, uh, I guess as I said, I really, I really like this question. I think it's a really, really interesting question. Um, uh, so let's, um, uh, so let's sort of think this through for a second. The basic question is: Is Gandalf right? Basically, right? And that's what Anthony was questioning, right? Does Gandalf know what he's talking about? Gandalf tells Frodo that if you possess the ring for long enough, you'll become a wraith. Um, is he right? Does he know what he's talking about? And on the one hand, I think that Anthony's completely right, completely justified in questioning, um, in, 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 in questioning Gandalf's information here. Because, of course, as I think Gandalf himself would have been the first to admit, he does not have much first-hand empirical data about the ring. And indeed, very few people really know about the ring. Uh, Tony, as you say, Saruman is the one who is um, who goes in for ring lore most in the council, right? So a lot of his lore, as you say, Tony, would have come uh, from Saruman, presumably, right? And even Saruman's lore, uh, as um, uh, as Gandalf himself says, like uh, his lore has to have a source, right? He didn't just figure it out some I didn't figure it out experimentally or something like that right um so it's pretty clear it's I think there's there's all kinds of reasons to at least question right uh, maybe Gandalf's wrong maybe that's not how maybe the one doesn't actually work that way maybe it wouldn't really turn you by itself into a wraith um and uh, so, I mean, it, it is that that last sentence is very striking, right? The nine are nine for nine and the one is 0 for five. Um, now, it's a little hard to say that uh, the 0 for five, I mean, 0 for five is a little bit of a str I mean, it's technically true, right? But it's slightly misleading, right? I mean, the fact that Sam didn't get turned into a wraith is hardly the ring's fault. He had it for what? A couple hours? Um, we don't know exactly how long Isildur had it, um, but uh, but anyway, like there are some extenuating circumstances here. Um, but as Anthony points out in his post, uh, um, or in the discussion that followed as well, um, Gollum is the data point that really 
stands out, right? Now, story passed your right to say, uh, and someone, maybe it was even you, I don't remember, uh, on, on the thread afterwards, pointed out that we don't, in fact, know that the nine were nine for nine, right? For all we know, he could have gone through a whole bunch of kings uh, before that. They ended up with nine wraiths, right? But how many kings they went through on the way, we don't know 100% for sure. But I really don't see any... uh, I mean, it's true that we don't know that for absolute fact, but um, I don't see any real reason to doubt that the kings to whom the nine rings were given... Uh, in fact, all became the ring wraiths in the Nazgul. So, um, so yeah. Now, Ray, that's a one. There, so there, there are a bunch of really interesting factors here. Um, really interesting questions. We'll come back to the Gollum question in a second. Um, first, just thinking about the comparison of the Nine Rings and the One Ring, right? Um, so, the 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 the. One one factor that Ray points out is that when the Nazgul were turned, Sauron had the one, and I think that's a, vi- a vital component of their wraithification. Yes. So remember that the the lesser rings, right, the nine and the seven, they were designed to enslave the the wielders, right? They were they were gifts with a booby trap, right? I mean that was that was the entire purpose of them. And it was the one ring that was the sort of the activating thing, right? He's the, the one ring to control them all. So yes, by exert... Because the whole point, the primary point of the one ring was to assert domin—to assert mastery, right? To achieve domination of the other rings of power, especially. Right? So, again, yeah, that's the function of the one ring. And the function of the nine rings is to dominate and enslave Apparently, by wraithification um, uh, of the of the kings, right, who had them. So what we know is that the seven failed and the nine succeeded, right. Um, so again, there I don't think that um, uh, I don't think that it's exactly fair to compare the action of the one on its wielder, like Frodo and Bilbo and and Gollum, and the nine on their wielders because they were in completely different circumstances, right? To be the bearer of the one and to claim it for yourself is a big deal and it does things to you, but it doesn't do the same thing to you that having one of the nine would while Sauron has the one, right? I mean, when you put on, when you are a human king and you put on one of the nine rings and Sauron is holding the one, you are stepping into the trap, right? You're, you're, you're putting the collar around your neck, spiritually speaking, right? It is curtains for you at that point. He has got you exactly where he wants you and exactly where he has maneuvered you, exactly how he has exerted his power. Claiming the One Ring, that's not the function of the One Ring. The function of the One Ring is to dominate the wills of others. Now, it changes people, right? Uh, It corrupts people, as we've seen, as we see with Gollum, as we see uh, with Isildur, uh, potentially, as well, uh, in his claim of the ring, as we see, of course, the influence it has on folks like Boromir uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, so, is the One Ring corrupting for Sauron himself? I don't think so, right? It is his own power, it is his own essence, right, that he has put in the ring, so I don't think it does him any harm any more than, I mean, of course, you could just say 
he's doing harm to himself, right, through his poor choices, his poor moral choices, right, following his master uh, down the path, down the dark path into uh, to the void. But, um, uh, but nevertheless, like it's it's not acting. It's not going to like make Sauron into a wraith or something like that, right? Um, uh, so, okay. Um, and yet, again, you could say that the ring does harm sound. Of course, eventually, like the making of the ring, it brought brought about harm. But you know what I mean, right? It's not like it's dangerous for him to wear it because it's going to turn him into a wraith. That's obviously not really an issue with Sauron himself. Okay. So, again, there seems to be justifiable reason to question Gandalf's story. Gandalf's information, right? That if you wear the One Ring long enough, you will turn into a wraith. I think that Gandalf's... uh, Absolutely, totally agree, Flammifer, that making the ring was a big mistake by Sauron. Completely right. But that's not the... That's that's a totally different kind of question than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about here the, like, way the ring works, right? The nature of the ring itself and the, the, the relationship it has with its wielder. Okay, so... There's lots of reasons, therefore, to question Gandalf's assertion about what happens to the wielder of the One Ring. First of all, it's never happened, right? Um, that element of that of that impressive last sentence by uh, by Anthony there is completely true, right? So when Gandalf says it will eventually turn you into a wraith, he is literally speaking of what he does not know. Nobody does because it's never happened, ever, ever. There has never been anybody who has become a wraith by wielding the One Ring. That doesn't mean he doesn't prove that he's wrong. It just, like, he can't prove that he's right, right? There's no empirical evidence to support um, uh, Gandalf's direct assertion, exactly. Um, But, um, uh, okay, so, however, I I, I don't necessarily think, uh, for all that I've been saying, I think that questioning... Gandalf's assertion is perfectly valid. I do think it's perfectly valid, but I am not sure that we have enough reason to really question it or to really decide that he's wrong. Right? Um, we might wonder if he's right or not, but I don't think we can disprove him either. Um, uh, now, Lincoln, you're absolutely right. Remembering the actual sentence that Gandalf utters, he says, "A mortal." Uh, who wields one of the great rings does not die. He merely continues. He does that whole sentence. He is not s- explicitly saying that that is the power of the one ring. He is Lincoln explicitly applying that general piece of information about and that 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 doctrine, right? That that concept that Gandalf is describing about how possessing one of the great rings as a mortal leads to wraithification. Um, is, I mean, there is evidence to support that, right? Look at the nine, right? Uh, he's got nine pieces of evidence scampering about, in fact, getting closer to the Shire all the time, though Gandalf doesn't yet know it. Um, so there is evidence that that could, that that does, in fact, happen. Um, his, the, the, the element of it, therefore, that is kind of speculative on Gandalf's part is his application of that to the One Ring. Right? Um, so... Um, yeah. Now, the question then becomes, 
why is the why does the evidence to hand that over five right from the one ring why is that an insufficient pool of evidence to disprove the this idea right like oh yeah that may be the case with like the nine or the seven or whatever but it's not the case with the one ring right again it's never happened with the one ring even the golem who had it for 500 years right 500 years um so um there are two things that we can say to this right one, Flamifer, exactly. Counter evidence is the seven, right? The seven fail, and they fail because of the nature of dwarves, how Aule made them in the beginning strong and stubborn to resist the domination of others, right? And so they do not fade, and they do not become raids, and so Sauron recalls the seven rings, right? And that seems to me to be the evidence that underlies Gandalf's speculation, right? He, he says that it seems that hobbits fade very reluctantly, um, that hobbits prove to be tough uh, and difficult for the, for the rings to wraithify. So, so the evidence says, okay, we know that this is an impact that great rings have upon mortals. None of the mortals who have possessed the one ring have become wraiths, um, this can be, there are two theories that could explain this, right? One is that, uh, the one ring doesn't work like that and we don't need to worry about that. And the second is that, um, there is some reason why that hasn't happened. And of course, one of the things that's very noticeable about that list of five, right? The five mortals who ever did claim the, you know, hat possess and claim the ring and to any extent, um, Isildur alone is not a hobbit, right? Gollum, Bilbo, Frodo, and Sam, all hobbits, right? So this then fuels what does seem to be Gandalf's theory, right? Gandalf's theory uh, that the reason it hasn't happened with Frodo is not due to the nature of the ring. It's not that the one ring doesn't wraithify its wielders. It's just that it happens to have been wielded almost exclusively by hobbits, and those hobbits um, are tough, like in you know, like the dwarves, right? Um, maybe in different ways, maybe for different reasons. Um, but Gandalf seems to believe that it is more likely uh, that it is the nature of hobbits themselves that lead to the non-wraithification, even of Gollum, who had it for five hundred years. And the other thing, of course, is that. Um, uh, uh, Gandalf himself points out that it had been long since Gollum wore the ring much, right? Um, he does not, uh, in fact, wear it. So let's see, uh, going back, uh, someone, I think it was Harnuth, yes, thank you, pasted in the, 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 the text here. Thanks for that, Harnuth. A mortal Frodo who keeps one of the great rings does not die, but he does not grow or obtain more life. He merely continues until at last every minute is a weariness, and if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. Right? Um, it is the wearing of the ring and the making of oneself invisible by the power of the ring, which Gandalf says directly leads to the fading. Now, again, one could very sensibly say, uh, how does he know that? 
for sure. Again, there's even with the nine, there's got to be relatively limited data, right? I mean, although we do have nine test subjects for the effect of great ring wielding upon mortals, I doubt they were under very careful observations and that very good case study notes survived uh, from those times, right? Um, So one could say, maybe he's not right about that, but it kind of makes a deal of sense, right? I mean, the whole thinking about what we learned about the whole, you know, wraith world and the other side and what happens when Frodo's wearing the ring and uh, how he's, you know, can see the wraiths and uh, and all that stuff. Um, it seems Gandalf probably knows what he's talking about here, right? That the, the wearing of the ring... Uh, and that crossing you over into the other side in that way, which as a mortal is not like how it's supposed to work, right? Um, you know, the way in which that's this kind of metaphysical violation, right? Uh, which is deeply unnatural. Um, I find it very, very likely. Uh, in fact, it seems to me that what we read of Frodo's adventures th- up through uh, the um, um, the Ford suggests to me that Gandalf is completely right about the fact that it's the uh, it's the wearing of the ring and the becoming invisible uh, that uh, leads directly to the fading, to the wraithification process. And again, this is where it seems that Gollum's non-usage of the ring um, factors in. And remember, Gandalf explicitly makes that connection, right? Um, after he says that is when he point, you know he he says that you know it'd been long since he had worn the ring much he had not be, you know and then he says you know he certainly hadn't faded he is thin and tough still um uh yeah yeah um now matt that is a really good point as well gandalf of course him he himself is not a very uh, relevant data point in the sense that he's not a mortal, exactly, right? But he is, in fact, wielding a great ring while he's saying all this stuff. So he will at least have some sense of what a great ring can and can't do, right? So even if he does not know firsthand exactly what it is like for a mortal to wield one of the great rings, because he's not in that situation exactly. Nevertheless, he does know what the great rings are like, right? Even though the three rings are going to be different from Sauron's rings and probably not operate in exactly the same way, but still, he will have some first-hand data, right? So the combination of what he knows of great rings from, you know, wielding one for a long time, and on the other hand, what he knows of mortals, remember, especially, he's made a particular study of hobbits and knows more about hobbit lore than anybody else in Middle-earth, right? So another thing which leads me to believe that his speculations about the nature of hobbits being particularly um, responsible uh, for the coincidental uh, poor performance of the Ring of Power in its wraithification career, um, that seems to me very, very, very likely. Um, and, um, yeah, Boomful, you were joking about this earlier on, uh, that uh, you know we'll need more rings and more test subjects. That's, of course, exactly one of the problems, right? I mean, there is a very limited pool of data, and it's not like we can do experiments in order to, to explore further exactly how this works, right? Um, yeah. Now, Brandon, Isildur didn't have any side effects that we knew of? Ex- no. Um, 
Well, Brandon, there's only one thing that we can point to that one, I think, could potentially call a side effect of the ring or evidence of the corruption of the ring on Isildur, and that's his refusal to destroy it. Um, the whole Wear Guild line, exactly, that's what Mad Violinist was saying, too. The Wear Guild line, right, I'll, I will, this I will keep as Wear Guild for my father and my brother, has all of the hallmarks of a, of a ring-induced rationalization, right? Um, so, absolutely, um, he... I do think, uh, seems to be under the, um, uh, the, sorry, I realize I'm having a little technical issue here. Um, yeah, sorry. Let's see. Oops. Okay. I might lose my, uh, Twitter feed. My, you know, those moments when like, your power cable that you've always been able to rely on before suddenly seems to give out and stop working with your phone. I seem to be having one of those moments. So my Twitter feed might give out. I apologize. Um, anyway, okay. So yeah, so it's, and that's, that's the, there's very little that we know of Isildur here. Um, we know that he rationalized keeping it at first. We know that he seems to be rationalizing keeping it afterwards. Um, but um, uh, we don't know too much more about that. And at the same time, um, we also know that, um, what was I going to say? Something else about Isildur. Um, oh yeah, that he can't have used it much, right? That is, I doubt that Isildur was wearing it and being invisible a lot. He clearly had because he knew that it would make him invisible. I mean, he knew enough to put it on to try to escape from the disaster of the Gladden Fields, right? So it's not like he had never, ever worn it. Um, and yet, it seems a little bit unlikely that... Um, uh, it seems a little bit unlikely that he uh, was wearing it a lot, you know, and just, like, tooling around invisibly in Minas Tirith all the time. Um, so again, that's just another thing to to potentially answer why Isildur was not further down the Wraithification road. And again, we don't even really know how um, far down the Wraithification road uh, he had gone exactly, and he didn't have it very long. Sir Calidor, uh, whose name I still love, um, I love your name every time I see it, Sir Calidor. Um, and you're right, Isildur is the first to name it precious. That is another thing. It is precious to me, he says. Um, and that does suggest a similar kind of uh, uh, corruption, right? So again, we can see the ring influencing him in ways that we're familiar with, right? In ways that um, that are familiar to us in a, from other contexts, right? Um, but uh, anyway, we will... Uh, uh, and and how long did he have it? Did somebody check Appendix B. How long is the time between the you know the the death of Elendil and the overthrow of of Sauron and the disaster of Gladden Fields? It's like a couple years, something like two and a half years. Yeah, that's what I thought. Not not very much. Um, so yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is only a. I mean, he's only a couple years that he has it. So. Who knows? I mean, had he taken it to the... This is one of the things that I've always thought uh, from the story of Isildur, right? On the one hand, the story of Isildur is a tragedy. Um, you know, his... It's like, 
to win, you know, the, as he did win the battle. I mean, again, Isildur what didn't get lucky uh, at the battle on Mount Doom, right? He threw down Sauron. I mean, he defeated the big boss. This was a big, big deal by Isildur, right? And he's now going home uh, to, you know, take up his uh, his father's scepter and, you know, try to rule his people and everything was... I mean, his father was dead and Gilgalad was dead and that was all very sad and everything, but, you know, things had turned out... Um, you know, relatively well. Um, and then to be ambushed and destroyed on the way home, it's tragic, right? And yet, it's it could have been worse, a good deal worse. Uh, the You know, Isildur's death at that point, it turns out, is certainly not uh, the uh, worst thing that could have happened to him, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Trifle, we will go through who actually defeated Sauron when we get there in the Council of Elrond. Uh, not trying to claim that Isildur did it alone, you know, that he was a, it was a solo boss defeat there um, at all. But, um, yeah. Anyhow, okay. Um, so, in short, I don't think there is enough evidence to conclude that Gandalf is certainly wrong. Um, about uh, the One Ring causing reification. Um, and although it's a little hard to be certain, I think that the um, evidence of Bilbo's testimony, the thin and stretched business, seems to correlate with what Gandalf himself... Indeed, I would almost have to say uh, that it... Um, Bilbo's comment about being thin and stretched, you know, like butter scraped over too much bread, doubtless informed. It's one of the main data points that that Gandalf's conclusion about the One Ring is based on, right? When he heard Bilbo say that, he's like, oh, hang on, that's exactly like what we have theorized and in part observed with the Ringwraiths happens to mortals when they possess a great ring, Um you know, I, I bet if a hobbit had a great ring and, and it was being affected, he it would say he would, that's just how he would describe it, right? Um, yeah. So um, anyway, so so I do incline to believe um, uh, Gandalf, but the one thing that I would um, the one thing that I would say uh, that I think is is to me, one of my kind of take-homes from this analysis, from you know, from Anthony, from your excellent question, is it's easy to forget. Um, thinking if if we are unduly fixated on Gandalf's statement about great rings causing wraithification in mortals, um, if we are unduly fixated on that, we may look at the One Ring and its impact on Frodo in particular. Uh, and think that wraithification is the number one issue, right? Is the number one objective. Um, and that, I think, is certainly not the case. Um, again, it may well be that I, I think it likely that it is true that the One Ring will will wraithify eventually a mortal who keeps it and who wears it a lot. Um, but I don't think it is true that that's the function of it, right? I mean, again, we know... 
we know what the purpose of the nine rings and the seven rings were, right? The one ring's purpose is not that. Um, if it does wraithify mortals, which again, I think it probably does, that's like a side effect, right? That's not the primary function, the primary purpose, the primary identity of the one ring, right? Um, so it's more than just that, uh, I think. Um, Yes, and Trifle, I agree with you. I I really... I don't think we have yet seen enough evidence to convince me that the ring plans and thinks. Um, I don't see enough evidence yet to suggest that. Um, Yeah. But, um, anyway, what does the ring do? Remember, this is where one of the things that I have been really interested in thinking about that, you know, of of the stuff we've been discussing over the last few weeks. I keep thinking back to Bilbo's story. We talked about last week, Bilbo's story about, um, what he said, right? His rationalization about going back to the Shire to fetch back the ring, right? And how much, that sounds like exactly the kinds of rationalization we see in Frodo, which seem to be ring-induced, right? Which seem to be seem to be associated with the power of the ring on him, right? And it's tempting when we're reading those Frodo passages to imagine that this is almost the ring whispering in his ear, right? It's like the ring is conscious and sentient and communicating with him, right? Now, of course, we know inanimate objects can communicate. There are a couple precedents for that in Tolkien's literature. So, you know, we can't... Abs- I'm not saying that that is categorically ridiculous. Um, but as, as I say, we... Um, I think that's how we tend... To, and it's, it's very natural, I think, uh, to, to read those passages that way. But I'm not convinced that that is necessarily the best way to read that passage. And that business of Bilbo's is one of the things which leads me to really question that concept, right? Um, This might sound like a very fine distinction, but I think that it might be a significant one, okay? Um, Here's the distinction I would want to make. Those rationalizations, those ring-induced rationalizations, are not coming from the ring. They are coming from the bearer of the ring. They are the kinds of things that... The reason that these ring-induced monologues and things come up, right, is not because the ring is speaking to each of these people in some way, like telepathically or empathically or whatever, right? Um, It's not that the ring is causing it in that way, is is instructing them or, again, kind of tempting them precisely. Um... But these are the kinds of things that people who are in the grip of the desire of the ring ha- say, 
right? The ways that their mind thinks. So that the power of the ring is to corrupt your own mind in particular ways, right? To, 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 to be the object of desire to lead you to want power. Tony says it's like the, the, self-talk, the self-talk that addicts have. Yes, like that. Not the same exactly, Tony, but like that, I think, in some ways, right? Um, when you are... When the ring is operating on you, when the desire for the ring is operating on you, it is forming your thoughts. It is influencing your thoughts. You're tending to think in a particular way. A good ex- Like the dragon sickness belongs mon. Yeah, sure. Yeah, like that. So take, for instance... The um, the desire, the, the, the reflection that Frodo has when he's looking at the ring when Gandalf tells him to throw it in the fire, right? That doesn't necessarily have to be the ring itself communicating with him and being like, oh, aren't I beautiful? Don't you love me? You sure don't want to throw me in the fire, do you? Right? Um, again, I think that often we find it tempting to view the ring in that kind of a, a sort of a directly acting, uh, uh, sort of semi-anthropomorphic way. But I don't think that that's necessarily what has to happen, right? If your own will has begun to be corrupted, if your own, if that, the, that preciousness of the ring, right, your own desire to claim the ring, your, um, uh, your desire to possess it and master it, your, Undesire, right? Your unwillingness to give it up or to destroy it or to give it away. Um, once your own will has been turned in that way, this is the way that you're likely to think, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Lilith says, but there has to be a magic within the ring that makes a person desire it more than any other random ring, right? Yes, Lilith. I would say there is a difference between how the ring acts on people and how the, the, the Silmarils act on people, for instance, right? And one of my little Silmarillion pet peeves is when people talk about the Silmarils as if they're like the One Ring, as if the Silmarils are themselves a corrupting influence, as if they are themselves evil, right? And cause all of this suffering around them. They don't cause suffering around them, right? Um, uh, they, They are beautiful. They are desirable. They are eminently desirable. And thus... People do bad things, right, out of desire for them, right? But it's not their fault, right? Whereas, yes, it is the ring's fault, Lilith. So you're right. I'm not saying that the ring is totally inert, in a sense, right? I'm not saying that it has no magic. It does. I think that it does influence people. Um, But I think that... I'm theorizing here that all of the things that we see, the ring-induced monologues and all that kind of stuff, can all be explained by a passive um, a passive impact that the ring has upon its wielders and upon those who are thinking about it and desiring it, right? It's not that it has no power. It obviously has power. 
Um, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't have any effect. It obviously does have an effect. Um, but I don't think it necessarily, um, it necessarily has to be, not only does it not have to be sentient, I don't even think it has to be active. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt says there could be a parallel between the One Ring and an embodiment of Sauron's will to dominate and the Astari's self-embodiment to enter and impact Middle-earth. Maybe. Just thinking of, like, the, the kind of embodiment, the kind of sort of incarnation that that was. Um, in a sense, yeah. Um, yeah, Karita uh, says maybe it's less like planting thoughts and more like turning up the volume on certain thoughts uh, uh, plus additional desire for power. Yes, so Karita, thinking about it that way, of course, fits wonderfully with, for instance, the difference between the ring's effect on Gollum and on Bilbo, right? Why is it that it matters so very much how they came to have the ring, right? Why does it matter so much that Bilbo began his ownership of the ring by throttling his close friend, and Bilbo began his uh, ownership of the ring by having pity on his enemy, right? Uh, In theory, why should that matter, right? Well, but, Karita, exactly as you say... If that's what the ring is doing, if it is taking certain thoughts and ramping them up, amplifying them, right? If that's the sort of one of the passive powers, right, effects of the ring, well, it's got a lot to work with, right? Uh, with Gollum, though, the volume's already up pretty high on all of those things. So Gollum's an easy mark for the ring as far as the corruption of the ring is concerned, whereas Bilbo is, morally speaking, pointing in the opposite direction, Right. And so, you know, Bilbo is a harder, you know, the the rings, the influence of the ring has to, like, turn Bilbo's ship entirely around. Right. In order to get him going in uh, the morally corrupt uh, direction. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, Morrowind says, like Sam's desire to be a great. Uh, to be a great gardener. I agree, Mornawin. I think that's a really good example, right? What The reason that everybody's ring monolog- ring-induced monologues are different, right, is because they really do reflect their own desires. Um, that model, you know, Karita, that, you know, the, the, what, the model that you were just describing, I think works really well because I, I th- it fits particularly well with the ring-induced monologues that we see, right? Um what are the elements in Gollum's character, in Boromir's character, in Sam's character that are being, in, even in Bilbo's character, thinking back to that uh, rationalization that he was doing last week with wanting to go back and fetch the ring and bring it back. What are the elements of their characters that are being encouraged? Right Now with Bilbo, the, thing, the, the other reason that that's interesting, of course, is that the ring is remote. The ring can't be whispering in his ear anymore, right? He's not got it, and it's nowhere nearby. But if, Karita, again, still using your analogy, right, if the volume has been turned up on these particular desires in Bilbo for 60 years, right, that's going to take some changing, right? Now Bilbo's ship is pointed in the other direction, and it's going to take him a while to turn it back in the other way. That He's been conditioned morally, right, by possession of the ring for the last 60 years, and use of the ring as well. Um, 
So, yes, good trifle. And Tom has no thoughts to turn up since he had no thoughts of domination at all. Exactly. There is nothing to work on with Tom Bombadil. The particular things that the ring focuses on, uh, that sort of that selfishness, the desire for power, the desire for domination, the desire to assert your will, to make happen what you want to happen, to possess the ring for yourself, all of those things, Tom ain't got it, right? Um, so there is nothing. The ring has no effect on him. So yeah, Trifle, that's a really good point. The, uh, Tom Bombadil is another case where, again, if we apply um, uh, Carita's rationale to that, that seems to pass that test as well. Um, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, why does Frodo want to leave Tom's house? Okay, great question. Um, Flamifer, that would have been there already, right? So think about precisely what it is. Is the ring trying to escape from Tom Bombadil? No. Frodo is wanting to go off, right? Frodo is wanting to leave off on his own. He has that impulse several times, right? To get away from the others. Now, keep in mind, this is seems particularly cunning, right? We've seen that desire. Frodo, how many times has Frodo tried to ditch his friends? He's still gonna, in the future, try to ditch his friends again. Right? That impulse in Frodo to say, I should be off on my own alone, right, is very strong. Now, it's an admirable desire, generally, right? I don't want my friends to follow me into danger. I'm going to face this danger myself. I'm going to leave and take the danger after me, right? That's what Frodo says when he's in his good place, right? But it's a very small tweak. Right to go from that to saying, I don't want these people messing with me anymore. Right, I want to be able to be free. Think of the celebration of freedom that Bilbo had when he was waltzing down the path at the end of chapter one. Um, think of that impulse that Frodo had to go running out after Bilbo without a pocket handkerchief in chapter two. Right. This desire to be free and that sense of responsibility, the worrying about his friends. There are lots of good reasons to rationalize that. Right. And it fits with his actual altruistic desire. But that the in what that one of the things, the the kind of desire that the ring uh, induces. So, again, Lalai thinking about that, that you know, the ring does have magic. Right. It does have an influence on uh, on its possessor. Right. It's not just uh, it's not like the Silmarils. It's not just an object of of of, you know, a sort of a passive object of desire. Um, uh, It is actually doing something to you. Well, but that thing that it's doing, one of the essential elements, one of the things that we see uh, very consistently. Right. Is that desire to have it all to yourself. I don't want to share. I don't want anybody else even to know. Right. We see it in Gollum right away, right? With you know, with him and Deagle, right? There's one too many of them, right? We see it with Gollum eventually fleeing and living entirely on his own under the mountains, right? Um, there's, um, there's, 
Sauron himself, right? Sauron himself living in his dark tower, and I don't think he's got a whole lot of confidants, right? Um, if Sauron doesn't have a lot of friends, right? I don't think he and the Witch King hang out and, you know, you know, shoot pool and smoke cigars on the weekends, right? Um, you know, I don't think I don't think he has his friends over for tea. It's 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 about um, uh, solitude, right? Uh, because to be in charge, right? To be the one means to be alone, right? Um, so, um, yeah, <laughs> Lincoln says he's been alone since Luthien's adventuring party wiped all his friends out. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Sauron used to have a whole posse, right? I mean, it used to be him and the gang up in his crib there, and then, you know, this girl and her dog came and wrecked the whole place, and he's been a loner ever since. It's a really sad story. Um, but, um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, um, so yeah, again, thinking back again, so to, so Frodo's impulse to go off alone. And again, it's not, um, um, yeah, nice. Curita says ours is a high and lonely destiny, right? Quoting both uncle Andrew and queen Jadis in the magician's nephew. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, so anyway, and, and good, Tony, we see it in Isildur as well, right? Now, um, in the disaster of the Gladden Fields that Tolkien wrote later on, right, the, in, in the disaster of the Gladden Fields in Unfinished Tales, Isildur's end is, like, not ignoble, right? But all we know before, at this point, right, all that we know in The Lord of the Rings is that ultimately he did exactly what Frodo seems tempted to do, right? In the Barrow and at Tom Bombadil's house, right? Run off on his own, save himself, right? Um, yeah, okay. Um, so as I say, I think that most of this stuff could be explained. And and let's see, we'll come back to it, right? We'll, we'll keep looking at this. But again, that passage with Bilbo... The fact that Bilbo still thinks the same way, that he still has what sounds exactly like a ring-induced um, situation, right? A, a ring-induced uh, uh, rationalization long after he you know, doesn't have the ring anymore, right? That, I think that's really important, right? I think that that, show, that, that would seem to be evidence that he himself has been conditioned in a particular way by the ring already, right? And it's not about, like, the ring, you know, invisibly perching on his shoulder and whispering into his ear. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Good. Well, there's there, there's a lot more that we could consider here. Uh, let's move on. We'll not going to be leaving this behind entirely. Uh, there's more to explain. In particular, um, I think back to Gandalf's statement, right, about, you know, the whole the ring left him thing, which is the number one sentence, which does give the clearest impression that the ring does have not only volition, but sentience, right? Very easy to imagine that when you listen to Gandalf say that, right? Um... But, um, but anyway, that's, um, 
uh, we can consider that at another time. And uh, and this is it's one of the reasons, as I suggested, why I think that uh, Anthony's question, just like the general tendency of Anthony's question to ask that question, is a really good one. Because um, I'd ask it again, the same kind of thing. Um, when Gandalf says that about the ring, um, that the ring left Gollum, how does he know that? What does he mean by that, exactly? Uh, how much does he really know uh, and how, what exactly is he really claiming when he says that would be my questions. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. Um, yeah, good. Uh, Matt says, if the ring is an embodiment of the will to dominate others, it will dominate others, its bearers. Yes, it will also dominate its bearers. Thus, it will leave a desire for it on those who possess it. Absolutely. And that that desire would manifest itself in Bilbo through the exact same kind of rationalization. That rationalization process, it seems to me, is exactly what you would see, you would expect to see in anybody who is, like, decent, right? Or even retains any kind of decency in themselves. Like, if you if you know what's... If you know the difference between right and wrong and you care about the difference between right and wrong and you... Um, are f- feeling these impulses, right? Um, this des- this desire to dominate others, you're going to be uncomfortable with it, right? How is that going to manifest itself? Well, almost inevitably, it's going manis- to manifest itself through rationalization, right? You're going to talk yourself into these things. Gandalf tells you to throw the ring in the fire, Right? He's like, trust me, throw the ring in the fire. And you've just learned that it's this like super dangerous and probably spiritually radioactive thing. Um, so like you want to throw it in the fire, right? At least some of you wants to throw it in the fire. But yet you find yourself not wanting to throw it in the fire. In fact, your hand is like kind of refusing to throw it in the fire. So what happens? Inevitably, what's going to happen, right? I mean, I think I'm no psychologist, but I suspect that a psychologist would tell you that that kind of sort of moral and cognitive dissonance is likely to manifest itself in rationalization, right? I am choosing not to destroy the ring. It's, gosh, you know what? It, it is really beautiful, right? It's, it's, I, I really, it's hard to think of throwing something this lovely into the fire, right? That's a, a place that, like, your brain seems to be very likely to go, right, in order to try to explain uh, this what's happening to you right at that moment. Um, yes. And trifle, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, we do see Isildur, Smeagol and Bilbo all get, this is why the ring is rightfully mine speech very early on. Um, yes, that does seem slightly different than the usual ring induced monologue. It's not about desires for themselves, right. And what they plan to do with the ring and all that kind of thing. Um, instead, it's about um, uh, it's like them processing. Uh, they want to put their claim to the ring. The, the, the first reality, what seems to be the first reality. So, Lilith, if we think about what are, what are the like, factors of the ring, right? We say it does have power, right? It does, it's not totally passive. It's not merely an object of desire. It's not just like the gold in the dragon sickness equation, right? It is doing something to you. It is kind of spiritually radioactive. Well, the one thing that is clearest and soonest is that desire to possess it, 
right? And desire, therefore, to make your claim to it firm so that nobody can come along and say you shouldn't have it. Um, yes, and they do bend the truth in that speech, and, and, that, and that rightfully alarms Gandalf, right? Because that suggests there is something in possessing this ring that starts to throw your moral compass out of whack right away. Um, it, so yeah, we can see it doing some stuff, but again, it doesn't necessarily mean that the ring is whispering in their ears, right? Um, okay. So I made a pretty good effort at taking so much time on this particular note and query that we didn't get even to a single passage, but we're going to persevere and definitely do a slide tonight as well. But of course, this is, uh, I'm always happy to pause to revisit the, you know, there are several really long-term questions that we're looking at, right? You know, we're, we're, we're working together, uh, on compiling some long-term evidence, uh, to, you know, for some, uh, for a few significant questions that we've had throughout the text. And this is a big one, right? So totally worth, uh, pausing here for a second. Um, uh, in order, a second, I say, if you, I guess if you call over an hour a second, uh, which in the context of this class, I guess you could kind of, uh, defend it. But anyway, that's fine. No regrets. Somebody threatened to get me a mug that said, I regret nothing. Uh, <laughs> true enough. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, it is like a second to the end, Scalandar. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, Okay. I have an idea. Let's go <laughs> Valor in seconds. That's it. Um, let's uh, let's go on to our our first passage. Let me remind you that one of the contexts that I um, uh, that I want to remember uh, as we look at this is again. I think I think w- when Peter Jackson depicted this moment between Bilbo and 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 Frodo in the Hall of Fire. Well, it wasn't in the Hall of Fire, of course, in the film. But um, I think that he. First of all, I don't want to... So, of course, this is the scene I'm talking about. Uh, Naturally, you'll all remember this, right? When Bilbo gets the crazy face. And uh, I know many people find this one of the most, like, scary moments in the entire trilogy. um, Film trilogy. This, I think, is a very effective moment. Um, And what... How Jackson uses this moment in the film, I think, is really interesting. Totally defensible. Really interesting and uh, um, and just uh, you know a, a powerful moment I think in the movie. In particular, what he does with it, right? Or one of the things that he does with it is this is a mo- this is one of the first moments where Frodo really inter- in the film where Frodo really internalizes um, the effect of the ring, right? When he really kind of realizes what he's sort of come in for, in a sense. Um, you know, that he, he now sees the impact that it has had on Bilbo, right? Um, and therefore this is a clear warning, uh, for what could happen to him and a foreshadowing, of course, uh, to the viewers as to the impact that it can have, uh, on, uh, uh, on, on himself. Um, so I think... Whether or not people have been influenced by the film in their reading of the text, or whether they do a similar thing with the text, I think that this is still the way that most of us tend to read it. In other words, that this passage that we are about to finally read is ultimately a passage about Bilbo 
and Bilbo's attachment to the ring. But I don't think that that's, necess- that's actually what's going on here. So here's the passage. The music and singing round them seemed to falter, and a silence fell. Bilbo looked quickly at Frodo's face and passed his hand across his eyes. Oh, darn it. Sorry, I missed it. There I go. I skipped ahead. I so excited about actually moving forward to a passage. I did to the next passage. Hang on. Okay. Have you got it here? He asked in a whisper. I can't help feeling curious, you know, after all I've heard. I should very much like just to peep at it again. Yes, I've got it, answered Frodo, feeling a strange reluctance. It looks just the same as ever it did. Well, I should just like to see it for a moment, said Bilbo. See the the rationalization, right, uh, happening here already? When he had dressed, Frodo found that while he slept, the ring had been hung about his neck on a new chain, light but strong. Slowly he drew it out. Bilbo put out his hand. But Frodo quickly drew back the ring. To his distress and amazement, he found that he was no longer looking at Bilbo. A shadow seemed to have fallen between them, and through it he found himself eyeing a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony, groping hands. He felt a desire to strike him. Okay. Um, The scene begins innocently enough, though we can... I mean, it seems kind of innocent, right? It's a natural enough thing for Bilbo to say, right? Um, We definitely see the rationalization acting in Bilbo, right? I can't help feeling curious, you know, after all I've heard, which, remember, as we've looked at before, can't really have been very much. All Bilbo has heard is that the Nazgul were pursuing it, right? And that Frodo got stabbed, and, and, I mean, it's a lot's happened, right? Um, yeah. Um, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Cecilia, you're totally right about his rationalization here. Um, uh, Frodo's strange reluctance, right? He feels reluctance, but it's a strange reluctance. Strange to him, presumably, right? He seems surprised. Again, we see cognitive dissonance here, right? cognitive dissonance here, that he is reluctant and he feels like he shouldn't be, right? Why should he be reluctant to show Bilbo the ring, right? Not a big deal. Bilbo can hold it. He had it for 60 years, right? He wouldn't feel reluctant to invite Bilbo back into Bag End, or let him have or hold again any of his other old things, right? Why should he be reluctant about this, right? Um... And then again, I should just like to see it for a moment. Ah, total rationalization, right? But yes, as several of you are seeing, that's exactly what I was seeing too when I was looking at this, uh, uh, you know, uh, afresh here as we're discussing it. I am now quite convinced this passage isn't about Bilbo, right? It is, it is not Bilbo's face that's changing, Right? It's Frodo's face, or Frodo's mind, that's changing. In fact, um, uh, in fact, um, 
you could say that what happens in this passage is the exact opposite of what Jackson does in the film, right? This moment in the film is, it reveals what's truly there in Bilbo's heart, right? And shows the influence of the ring on him and serves as a caution for Frodo. Frodo learns from that, right? Um, What, you know, he sort of can perceive and understands uh, really for the first time what the ring does to people, right? In the book, it's exactly the opposite. It's affecting Frodo, and it's Bilbo who sees for the first time what the ring does to people, right? Um, yeah. Um, so, slowly he drew it out. Bilbo put out his hand. But Frodo quickly drew back the ring. So that's what happens. Notice that we first get a series of very simple action statements, right? Those are the only three things that happen. He draws out the ring, Bilbo puts out his hand, and Frodo draws it back. That's all that happens. The rest of it is Frodo's perception. To his distress and amazement, he found he was no longer looking at Bilbo. A shadow seemed to have fallen between them, and through it, he found himself eyeing a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony, groping hands. He felt a desire to strike him. Um, Okay. So what's happening here? Is Frodo seeing what Bilbo truly is? Right? Is he having a clarity of vision here where Bilbo's desire for all of his rationalizations, right? Bilbo's rationalizations, I mean, for all of Bilbo's rationalizations, he perceives the horrible truth that in his desire for the ring, he is in fact Tony, yeah, looks like Gollum. Frodo's never seen Gollum, right? But a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony groping hands is probably what he imagines uh, from having heard the stories of Gollum for most of his life, right? Um, Absolutely. So, um, you could say, Grim Dragon, I agree that he's seeing what Bilbo could become were he to have kept the ring. Um, Yes, but see, but here's where I want to be careful. Where is, what is this, is this insight he's perceiving? Is Frodo seeing more clearly or less clearly in this moment, right? And it's hard, because on the one hand, what he's seeing, it's not untrue, right? I mean, it's a little bit legit. Uh, He is, like, Bilbo, that is the path that Bilbo was on, right? But he's not on that path anymore. Is this the truth of Bilbo? No. This isn't the truth of Bilbo. Um, and I think the key to understanding the vision... There are two things which strongly influence my reading of this passage. Right? I do not think he is having a true moral insight here. That he is having some kind of visionary glimpse into... Uh, uh, into the truth here. 
Um, first, there is a shadow that falls between them, and he is looking through the shadow, right? Bilbo is not revealed to him. Bilbo is obscured. So the way that that is described, again, it's not like, and suddenly everything became clear, and he had a picture of, you know, what is at the root of, nah, that's not what happens, right? Yes, Bilbo is not uncloaked, he is cloaked. There is a shadow. So he is seeing Bilbo through the shadow, and that seems to me much more likely to distort his vision than to clarify it, right? And the second thing, Carita, exactly as you say, the cue that we get in that very last sentence. He felt a desire to strike him, right? It is his own desire, right? What he is seeing, he is repelled by what he sees. He is angry about what he sees. He wants to hit him. Um, so the emotions that this vision... If he were receiving a clear vision of... Bilbo's desire or of Bilbo's potential future destiny or anything like that, right? I think that it would have induced pity in Frodo, especially towards Bilbo, right? Had he had a clear picture of what the ring was doing to him or how the ring uh, could have, uh, you know, what the ring could might have done to him or anything, and this is Bilbo, whom he loves so much, surely he would have felt pity, for that, right? Relief, maybe, right? But, um, but no. In fact, what it reminds me of, obviously, is when the insight Bilbo does have a true insight into Gollum and his true situation and character in the moment when he has pity on Gollum, right? In chapter five of the, of the Hobbit, when he's about to stab him and he chooses not to stab him. Remember what leads him to choose not to stab him, right? And that is him imagining himself in, Go- in Gollum's situation. Um, his realization of what Gollum's life must be like. And his vision there is only partial, right? He doesn't understand about the ring, right? Of course he doesn't. Neither did Tolkien at the time. But anyway, it's fine. He doesn't understand it, right? Um, uh he he but still even with only a partial understanding the clarity of that vision inspires him with the pity not to kill his own enemy in the dark who is trying to kill him right i mean all kinds of justifications not a hard rationalization to stab gollum in that moment for bilbo right um frodo does not have that reaction even um even towards bilbo right that reaction of pity uh, in response to finding himself eyeing a little wrinkled creature with a hungry face and bony groping hands. So no, I don't think this is insight that he has. I think that it is obscuring. And what is happening is that he is essentially projecting onto Bilbo this desire, right? Don't let him touch the ring. Keep it to yourself, right? Because if you let him... T- Look at it. He, he wants it for himself, Right? He is this little... Shri- all there is to him is desire. He is eaten up with, with 
the desiring of this thing. Uh, and he's, he's, you know, so he's small and wrinkled. His face is hungry because it is, again, only that desire that activates him. And his hands are just about groping and grasping, right? Seeking to take to, for himself, right? These are all the reasons why you should not let him touch the ring because it's your ring, right? And he wants it for himself. Um, this is the negative reaction that, again, that not that Bilbo has, but that Frodo has, right? And the tricky thing is, as we say, this might not be clarity of vision. This might not be a real, a true insight, a true insight that leads to pity, right? But it's not wrong either. And that's the insidious thing here, right? There's truth there. Just as there will be truth that Sam does want to keep the ring for himself and not give it back to Frodo, right? Uh, in Mordor, in the Tower of Kirith Ungol, when the same kind of thing is going to happen to Frodo again, right? Now, different, different circumstances there, right? And that's a warping of the truth, but still, there's some, there's some truth there, right? Belongsmond uh, suggests that Smeagol probably saw Diagol through this same uh, shadow, and killed him for it. Very possibly. Very possibly. Um, yeah. Um, so, let's look at the next passage quick before I can get a, a further distracted, because I really want to make sure we do the set here. The music and singing round them seemed to falter, and a silence fell. Bilbo looked quickly at Frodo's face and passed his hand across his eyes. I understand now, he said. Put it away. I am sorry. Sorry you have come in for this burden. Sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. Well, it can't be helped. I wonder if it's any good trying to finish my book. But don't let's worry about it now. Let's have some real news. Tell me about all about the Shire. Okay. So, um, several things here. Um, like I said, it's the opposite as in the Jackson film, right? It is Bilbo who has the insight. It is Bilbo who now realizes and understands for the first time in his whole life what the ring actually does to people. He can't see it when it's acting on him, right? He doesn't get it. He has not processed his own rationalizations. He doesn't understand, right? You can't see it when it's happening to you. Um, he can't see the continuity, right, the, the, between himself and Gollum. He can't see what he and Gollum have in common, right? He's blind to that. But when he sees it in Frodo, right? Um, I wonder what Frodo or Bilbo sees, right? Um, Matt, you were wondering if he is seeing uh, Frodo through the same shadow. I wouldn't think so exactly, but I think that he is... Um, um, I think that he is... Uh, well, okay. Think about, um, back to what we've seen, right? All Frodo has done physically is draw back the ring, 
right? But it's not just that. What he's seeing, what he's thinking, what he's feeling, his desire to strike Bilbo has to show up, right? At the very least, even if Bilbo is not himself has, having a kind of visionary experience, right, where he is, again, seeing Frodo kind of transformed before his eyes in some sense, I don't know that he, nece- he we don't know for sure he isn't, but I don't know that he necessarily is. I don't think that he would need to, right? Um, he knows Frodo really well. And there is no way he has ever seen that look on Frodo's face, right? Whatever Frodo's face is doing, when he is having that impulse to uh, uh, to 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 strike Bilbo, right? Frodo contemplating punching him in the face is not a look he's ever seen on Frodo's face before, right? But he gets it, right? He um. He understands what's going on. And in it's, it's Bilbo who has not just the perception to see the struggle that's going on in Frodo, but the insight, right? And also the distance, I think, from his own, from his own perspective, right? Where he, um, where he realizes... Because you see, it's not just that he's understanding what's happening to Frodo. Seeing what's happening to Frodo, he is now, I think, in this flash of insight, understanding what has happened to him over the years. Right? He never got it. He never realized the ring was affecting him. He got angry when Gandalf suggested that it was. Right? Um, and it's clear from the things that he was saying about his desire to go back and fetch the ring that he was he never really accepted it. He never really processed it, right? Um, but uh, um, he now does. Now, pause for one second. Storied past, I absolutely agree with you, and don't let me forget to do it. Well, I'm sure I won't forget, because we'll talk about it in the next passage. But we will totally get there to talking about um, Sam. Um, I I really want to talk about Sam in this moment, too. And in particular, why Sam doesn't do anything or say anything. Wonderful, wonderful question. And I'm not forgetting it, but I want to resolve Frodo and Bilbo first. And then we'll come to Sam. Okay. Um, Okay, so... Yeah, so again, so that this flash of insight, this is a huge insight for Bilbo. This is like a life-changing, world-altering insight for Bilbo. Like this is in this moment, Bilbo, like his entire life of the last 80 years is being turned on its head. Right? I mean, it's that big of a deal. Right? He is now seeing how like seeing through his own rationalizations, uh through everything that he um did his understanding now the reason why, like why Gandalf wouldn't let him go back for the ring? Um, understanding even what lay behind his own request to go back for the ring. Um, understanding suddenly why, why it seems likely we don't know this for a fact, but why Gandalf was probably encouraging him not to visit Frodo or to even write him letters. Um, he's now understanding more perfectly that scene that happened between him and Gandalf at Bag End. He is now seeing the continuity, seeing uh, 
how this is affecting Frodo and knowing how it affected Gollum and now being able to see how it affected himself too. Yeah, he sees all of this stuff clearly and he now know he still probably does not know that the ring is the one ring. But he now sees the power that the ring has. He sees the corrupting influence of the ring, acknowledges it, recognizes it in himself, right? And um uh and has pity. What does he do? So, a couple things. Let's look at the progression of Bilbo's thought here, because I think it's really, really fascinating. Um, first, the music and singing round them seemed to falter, and a silence fell. I do not think that's actually happening, by the way. Right? I, there's not a silence in the room. I don't believe there's a silence in the room. This is, again... Frodo's perspective, right? Um, in this moment, they're not, uh, they're not, he's not hearing anything else, right? Nothing else exists except him and Bilbo, right? Um, so that is, that statement I think is not a statement describing what is happening in the room around them. I think it is, uh, it is a reflection of the extent to which they are cut off from all these other things now, right? Um, it is possible that they could have just ended the song at that moment. You can't rule that out. Um, but, um, but I don't, I don't, um, I don't think so. No, Lilith, it's not like the moment when the sheriff walks into the bar and the noise cuts out. Yeah, no, exactly. Nope. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's, this is just, they, they are completely unaware of, the existence of anybody else right now. It is a testimony to that focus. Now, sentence by sentence, let's look at Bilbo's reaction, because this is a really complex little speech that Bilbo makes here. Bilbo looked quickly at Frodo's face, seeing that desire to strike him, Bilbo, and passed his hand across his eyes. Right? So he... This, or maybe this. Right? Um... Karita, I agree with you before. I think he is probably wiping a tear from his eye is probably one of the things that he's doing here. I think that in this insight that he has, one of the things which seems to be central in it is pity. And importantly, not self-pity, right? It would have been totally understandable for him to feel very sorry for himself at this moment. Right. To sort of like suddenly realize this thing about yourself that you never knew. And oh, my goodness. Right. Um, but no, that's not the case. Um, yeah. So Tony is saying, could he possibly be clearing his vision of the shadow? It's possible. That's if the shadow affects Bilbo in the same way. And I'm doubtful. I'm doubtful. I mean, it could. And goodness knows there's still enough, as we've seen from his earlier rationalizing speech, there's enough resonance still between Bilbo's heart and the ring that maybe the ring could affect him in this same way that it's affecting Frodo. But I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that Frodo is, Frodo's vision is being obscured. Bilbo is seeing clearly, right? For, again, the vision that Frodo has is not a revelation of a true thing, right? It is, uh, uh, it is, uh, Bilbo, who has the... We don't know... We're not told what he sees, right? We're not told what he feels. Um, 
But I think it's fairly clear that he is the one who has the real insight. I can see clearly now the ring has gone. Something like that. <laughs> he can see all obstacles in Frodo's way. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to be going on. Um, but, um, okay, so, so Karita, I, I, I'm inclined to think with you that with this flash of insight that he has comes pity for Frodo. Um, pity so strong that it brings tears to his eyes right away. Um, yeah, Kit, that's a really interesting way to think about it. He just, it's like he just lost Frodo, right? It's almost like he's watching Frodo die. It's worse, almost, in a sense, right, than watching Frodo die. Pity and guilt, Gilgalm theory. Uh, yeah, there's definitely an element of that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, and then he says, I understand now. What a wonderful, just a very terse sentence, but really powerful. I understand now. So much behind that sentence. I understand why you feel the way that you do. I understand why I wasn't allowed to see the ring again. I understand. Maybe even understands why he always had a chaperone in the room with Frodo. Um, I understand you know, why Gandalf kept badgering me about my ring. All of these things. And yes, Tony, he knows that Frodo will never be the same. Absolutely. Um, I understand now. I understand what it means. I didn't get... Remember, the whole premise of what he's asking for is after all the things that he's heard about his ring. Like, oh man, turns out like Sauron is after it now. And, you know, uh, uh, like the ring wraiths were pursuing it and everything and wanting to make mincemeat out of me because I used to have it. Like, I don't get any of that, right? So he understands now. He understands now. Um, Put it away. I am sorry. Sorry you have come in for this burden. Sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? Um, this is the one element, by the way, this line. When, when Ian Holm delivers this line uh, in the film, it's the one part of the scene I don't like. Like I said, I don't think this scene is a good reading of the passage. I think it gets it exactly backwards, but I still like it. It works really well in the film. It's a great, it's a great scene. Um, it's different, but that's okay. Uh, film can be different. However, that moment is the one moment in the scene that I really dislike. Um, when Ian Holmes starts crying, I'm sorry of coming for this burden. Sorry about everything. Right. And, and his cry and the way that he cries, um, He is giving in to... He sounds a little sorry for himself, if you see what I mean, right? Like, he is giving in to sorrow on his own behalf. Whereas, what I dislike about that moment in the film is that that line, when Bilbo delivers that line here in the book, what he is saying is the opposite of that, right? He's not just kind of collapsing into... Uh, misery, right? Instead, he is expressing his insight to um, Frodo. 
I'm sorry about it. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about Frodo. Right? I'm sorry. I am sorry that you have come in for this burden. I'm sorry about everything. Right? Everything. And, you know, kid, I come back to what you said about just losing Frodo. Right? Um, you know, I can't help but think having just spent like a year of my life watching Doctor Who, uh, I can't help but think of, uh, you know, that thing that David Tennant always does when he's talking to a minor character who is certainly about to die, right? Or who has had achieved some fatal condition, right? That thing that David Tennant does when he says, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry, right? That's almost like what I'm hearing from Bilbo here, right? I'm sorry about everything. Like, you you have uh, this... It's not just that the thing that I gave you did you harm the thing. I mean, you've been banished, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one, Ambrose. <laughs> really honest, yeah. Um, and Tony, I agree. Everything is a strange word, given all that he did um, uh, for Frodo. Um, but that seems to be sincere in that moment, right? When he realizes that his entire desire um, for Frodo, right? Um, Remember him looking around Bag End and saying um, he should be happy here, right? Um, He believes that Frodo is going to live happily ever after, right? Um, And Frodo's not going to live happily ever after, so I, I think that it's when he says everything here, he's not just saying everything I did to you, I regret. He's not saying that because he knows that's not true. Right. But when he says so, he first says specifically, I'm sorry you have come in for this burden, but that's insufficient. Right. And as soon as he says it, it's like he realizes it's not enough just to say that. Right. I'm, I'm sorry about everything. I'm sorry about like everything that's happening to you. I'm sorry about like everything that your life has become because it's kind of my fault. Or at least I played a role in it, even if I didn't understand it, right? Um, I'm sorry that you lost everything. Yes, that you are right now losing everything. Because I think what's more, again, his insight here, he has gone from having way less information to Fro- than Frodo to suddenly to, he's leapfrogged him here, right? I think that Bilbo now understands way more clearly than Frodo the true implications of this, Right? As I think he's going to reveal after the Council of Elrond, he knows. He knows. Frodo's in this for the long haul, right? This is going to fall on Frodo, as I think we then see in his next statement. Don't adventures ever have an end? Don't adventures ever have an end? Um, uh, what's... um. So let's see, there's that, uh, yes, Villari, as you were just saying, um, his happily ever after just got very complicated. Don't adventures ever have an end? He, he had thought of an end to his book, right? Um, you know, and they all lived happily ever after till the end of his days. Um, he believes that his story had come to an end, right? Now he's seeing that that's not true. Adventures don't ever have an end. Um, he is seeing that his... Ad- but it's worse, right? This is not just a, 
Oh, here I thought I was going to be able to settle down into a nice quiet retirement and have the happily ever after that I have richly earned, but no, no, my adventures still go on. Now I got, I'm going to be pulled out of retirement. It's worse than that. Worse than that, right? To, in fact, the, the, the fate of Bilbo that I think he sees at this moment is, no, Bilbo, you have to stay in retirement and watch your adventure get carried on by Frodo to a likely bitter and horrible end. Watch him be permanently wrecked by this. Right? Um, yeah. He sees the doom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 I think that's pretty... That's pretty clear. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I do think that he understands that uh, in this, or at least to some extent. He, you know, does he know that there's going to be a quest to Mount Doom? No, no, no. I, it's not that kind of detail, right? But he sees that the end of his story isn't the end of the story, and that his story, the story of the ring, which you know, his story, which he thought was the whole story, it turns out to be only a short chapter of the story, and it's going to be carried on by Frodo, and it's going to be a, ba- a bad story. It's going to be a sad story, right? Um, and um, and he's... and that. So when he says, don't adventures ever have an end again, I don't think it's him and his story exactly that he's thinking of, um, but Frodo's continuation of it. Um... I suppose not. And I think there's, in that sentence, we can see some appropriate resignation by Bilbo, right? I suppose adventures don't ever have an end. Don't adventures ever have an end? The question there, the framing of that as a question, would seem to imply a longing, a wish that it could be the case, right? Um... Don't adventures ever have an end? Can't that be allowed to happen? What is that so hard? Can't you just let... Come on, cruel world, right? Can't you ever let adventures have an end? I suppose not. I suppose that's not how things work. I suppose that, you know, it was inappropriate or unrealistic of me to think so. In the end. Um, Someone else always has to carry on the story. This is a moment, I think, of real humility for Bilbo, right? As he is acknowledging, recognizing, yeah, my story, my there and back again thing, right? Which I thought was a really big deal. Um, remember, this is the same thing. Remember the last line of The Hobbit, right? Gandalf's, uh, Gandalf's last statement to Bilbo, right? Um, uh you know how uh, he's a very fine fellow, and and he's very fond of him, but he's he's only a, a a small fellow in the in in a wide world after all, right? Thank goodness, says Bilbo, but I don't think he's internalized it yet, right? Um, now he does internalize it, right? Um, someone else always has to carry on the story. Well, it can't be helped. I wonder if it's any good trying to finish my book. Notice how his mind goes to his book, right? Again, that realization of like, well, gosh, I thought I could finish it here. I thought that my book was this discrete thing, right? That was going to come to an end in my quiet retirement here. Um, Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> that is an awesome way to think about that, Belongsman. Um, Belongsman says, thinking back to that line from chapter one of The Hobbit, we will see what he learns. Uh, uh, we will see if he learns anything in the end, right? Um, Bilbo doesn't actually learn it until here, right? Which Belongsman is probably before. He actually writes the last chapter. Maybe, in fact, we could imagine that that last exchange between Gandalf and Bilbo wasn't written by Bilbo until after this, right? Now he sees it, right? But he never got it before. Um, maybe after Frodo departs and before he comes back, Bilbo writes that ending uh, to The Hobbit. Um, yeah, I like that too, Ambrosius. I think, I think that'll be my new headcanon as well. Um, yeah. And Irendis, you're absolutely right. There are all kinds of ways in which we can apply this to real life situations. And, and certainly Irendis points out, you know, how many of Tolkien's generation had similar thoughts about the Second World War. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's um, don't adventures ever have an end. I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story, says the guy who survived the Salmon is now seeing his, you know, three of his sons go off to war. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, no, there's, and, and that's one uh, very potent and personal example for Tolkien, but um, but only one of many um, uh, applications of this kind of thing. And then from there, the final and um, the final and most delightful moment, right? Where does he finally get back around? I wonder if it's any good trying to finish my book. But don't let's worry about it now. Let's have some real news. Tell me all about the Shire. So, his desire, right, to shift things. I mean, this is, um, uh, this, oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I apologize if you're not getting good audio right now. Um, perhaps my internet is having a moment. Uh, I'm sorry if that's the case. Um, yes. Yes, I see. Looks like... Okay, yeah, it looks like it is clearing up now. Apologies. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, this, I think, is... We had speculated at times in the past um, about uh, post-Weathertop, right? After our examinations of the whole scene in the Dell under Weathertop, um, in which, in retrospect, we were super efficient, by the way, um, in times since then, we've been looking at examples of moments when we've asked the question, do we think that this cheerful thing or this joking thing or this happy thing is being brought in as, an, as a kind of spiritual warfare, right, to sort of combat the, uh, the despair and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and everything? Um, anyway, um, I... Uh, this here this is a very clear example of Bilbo deliberately shifting ground. Notice he doesn't even let Frodo speak. He doesn't ask Frodo to speak. He doesn't ask Frodo to explain anything. He doesn't even let Frodo respond. His understanding of what's happening here is so deep that instead he just leaps straight to helping Frodo, right? Because he knows the best way to move past this moment. He knows the best thing that he can do is let's think about something else. And I know just the thing to think about 
that will be a good, not remedy exactly, but a good um, uh, antidote for this particular moment, right? Um, and that is, let's talk about the Shire, right? Tell me small news from back at home. Um, and truly, Grim Dragon, with Bilbo shift in conversation, the shadow dissipates. Absolutely. Yeah. And Tony is remembering the power of another sort in the Shire. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, good, good. Um, good, yeah, Ray, point, Ray is recalling how when Frodo approaches Mount Doom... Uh, he can't remember the Shire. Yes, that's, I think, going to be conspicuous. And we'll see. Um, uh, I would also urge you in this context to remember Sam's singing of simple songs out of the Shire in the Tower of Kirith Ungol before he sings his Song of Defiance, really leading to his Song of Defiance, in fact. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is... Uh, a very wise move by Bilbo, as well as a very kind and generous move uh, by Bilbo. Um, he totally takes charge of this whole thing, right? And although the whole thing is being told from Frodo's point of view, we're not getting any internal dialogue from Bilbo. Fortunately, he's doing it externally. We don't know, we're not told what he's feeling. Um, uh and in fact, remember, nothing has happened other than those few little hand gestures, right? Um, but this is this is a wonderful moment uh, from Bilbo. I think that the 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 emotional, spiritual, and psychological insight and richness in this paragraph is very remarkable. I think, uh, and I mean that both uh, both as a compliment to Bilbo and as a compliment to Tolkien. Um, this is a this is remarkable um, depth of emotional and spiritual insight, uh, I would say. All right. Um, but with that, we are going to pause. So, storied past, don't let, in, in case it looks like, I, in case I threaten to forget next time, don't let me forget, we're going to talk about Sam next week, okay? Um, that is totally going to happen. Um, also, remind me, to come back to the issue, was, I saw somebody mentioning earlier on um, that um, uh, that like about how dangerous this moment is, and like the question about like what are Gandalf and Elrond doing at this time, right? Um, I, I definitely want to talk about that too, uh, because we have no, we have some evidence about Sam and what's going on or not going on with Sam. We have no evidence at all about Gandalf and Elrond, no direct evidence at all about Gandalf and Elrond, but I think it's still well worth, uh, well worth speculating about. So we'll definitely talk about those two things in the context of, let me just peek ahead. Little spoiler here. Um, okay. We're going to have a mention of Sam. So that will help me remember that. Um, okay. So we will, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Um, so, um, uh, yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about those two things next week. I'm going to stop right now. It looks like my phone limped its way through, uh, the whole Twitter broadcast. So that's a good thing. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to end our book discussion here this week. Uh, and we'll come back with the news from the Shire. We'll talk about Sam and Gandalf and Elrond, and maybe we'll even get to Strider. Who knows? Um, so, um, 
Anyway, awesome. Thanks, uh, Twitter folks. Don't forget you can come and join us on Twitch for our, we're going to do our Lotro field trip now. Um, uh, so you can come over and join us, twitch.tv slash signumu. Uh, thanks everybody for joining me there this week. And, okay. And yeah, awesome. Uh, uh, Grim Dragon, you're right. That was a great discussion tonight. Both halves of the discussion, the half when we were talking about the power of the ring and the influence of the ring and the half in which we were talking about the Bilbo and Frodo passage. This was a, this was a, a really fun class. So, uh, thanks everybody for your, uh, participation here tonight. Um, awesome. Blew my mind. <laughs> oh, that was so cool! I just, yeah, this this uh, it's there's so many things. I mean, uh, you know, as silly, uh, you know, like on paper as exploring the Lord of the Rings is, you know, to like uh, have this protracted a discussion of the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's uh, moments like this, and we keep having them, right? I mean, I don't even know how many. I am not even going to be able to list by the time we get to the end of the Lord of the Rings. How many, I mean, I have read these books so many times. I've read these books scores of times. And yet there are so many passages that I am like seeing as if for the first time, completely rethinking how I've always thought about them. Um, I mean, I am discovering the Lord of the Rings. Like, it's like I'm reading them completely anew. Um, for, uh, in this uh, in this class, so yeah. you know, and it's pretty that's what awesome. Keeps me coming back, you know? absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. After 114 sessions so far, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, like re- remember when we celebrated the 500th episode of uh, of the Tolkien Professor podcast? Uh, just think of how we're going to celebrate our 500th episode of exploring the Lord of the Rings. You know, that'll be that'll be a fun day. Okay. We are headed back to Erid Lewin. So here, let me... There we go. We thinking Gondaman this time, or...? Yes. Yes, we're going to start off... Oh, wait, actually, maybe. Maybe we'll get to Gondaman, but let's let's maybe. go down... Oh, let's Crossy's get, Lodge, that's right. Yes, we got to come Lodge up around the uh, eastern side... Or western side, sorry. The western side of the road. Uh, up from Duolon because we kind of stuck to the west. We went through Duolon and kind of went up that way down through. So, um, yeah. Itching to look at more dwarf stuff. So best way, I think, would take a stable to Kalondam and then one to Dwiland, and then we ride out together, because I think Thrassi's only available if you've already unlocked it. True. But I'm also wondering, is there a way... So that um, area, I forget what it's called, that's south of Gondaman, is there a way to get in there from the east side? I think there is, but I'm not sure I could spot it without thinking about it because, yeah, it's got like a main entrance and the rest is just yeah, wandering around. It's a, it's a maze. Okay. It's pretty much a maze. Well, I mean, I'm we pretty sure. Try. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go out to Kellendim and then I might ride up from Kellendim. All right, we can do that. Just to see 
Because, like, after we left the vineyard, basically, um, after we left the vineyard, we kind of uh, stuck to the road and went east of the road from there. Okay. Right, you're not wearing your scholar's robe, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's because we're on Honor, so I don't have my... Yeah. Yep, I don't have any of my cosmetics on Honor. That's why my main outfit is from the clothing outfitters out here in Kalandip. Right. There's a new cosmetic coming out probably this week, assuming they launch Rise of Isengard. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's basically those Isengard cosmetics that have not been available forever because they were exclusives, but in blue and silver. <gasps> I love silver mm. and blue. Those are Valori's colors. They're mine too. There's pictures in the general <laughs> channel. Okay, yes, it looks like we can get into Roth Tarag there, north of Duolon. Yeah. 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 Uh, right. um, Edith Aldora was just saying that. Well, okay, so I'm kind of curious because... I want to say, I mean, I was planning to go down into there from Duolun, but um, if if there's an entrance from this side, then we should probably check it out because I want to see if it connects with the elvish architecture of this part of Arid Luin, and if so, which layer of the elvish architecture from this side. And then to see if there is, uh, and, and to see what's in there from this point of view, and we can work up to Gondaman from there. Sure. Because of course it's on the map. Wrath to Rig is is sort of middle ground ish, right? Yeah, I'm not sure if the parts that open out are on sheer cliff faces that we can ascend, but we can take a look. Okay. We will see. So that was, we just passed the turnoff to the, um, to the, that's the vineyard. That's the vineyard. Right. Okay. That's the other ruins over there that we saw. Up on the hill up here. Right. Okay. So let's continue from here. So you're going to skirt the lake and go up or something? Yeah. If I recall, if you came out on this side, uh, there were some pillars with the, the, the typical goblin clan ranking. Oh, there the, are pillars? The, okay, do, we, red, do we go the in red this wooden, way? The red wooden pillars. All right. Let's go around with this the, way. With the totems on it. I am sure that I never did this. This is something I always did when I'd come back when I was bored and I wanted level 40 and I wanted to finish all my exploration deeds out here. So it's been a while since... Uh, actually had to fight anything over here. Okay, okay. Seeing some stuff here. Oh, okay. So this uh, is oh, the pass. Yeah. Yes, here it is. Here's the pillars with the totems uh, on it. Okay, yeah. All right, so okay. it's been marked as goblin territory. Okay, so I'm just, I'm looking from the opposite direction here. No clear evidence, no markings, no ruins. It's just an opening. Yeah, I think there's actually not much here built by uh, free peoples. No, no, exactly. We do get so this. Oh, and it's 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 awful, right? How you can see this is just one of the 
one of the biggest and most glorious of these trees that was growing here that has been uh, defaced. Yeah, lopped and mutilated and made into a horrible goblin post. Little wolf totem thing there. Lopped and chopped. Yeah, and it is goblins, not orcs. Yeah. yeah. Goblins are at least a little more artistic than orcs. Yeah, these like are... blood swirls and the whole wolf thing, the warg thing that they have going on with the this yeah. profile of the wolf. We've been looking at these since at least Fornost. Devious or not, they have an element of craft to them. Yeah. Yeah. I see more things that are decoration than say, you know, either wards or function, just functional. Right. Didn't do much with their temps though, did they? Well, you know, even the fact that they have like a little awning is kind of, you know. Yeah. Well, they're they're artificers, you know. So. Yeah, they. I mean, that's. Um, they have know. enough sets to come in out of the rain. Exactly. It's slightly deluxe, right? Yeah. Uh, Okay. I mean the tent. Okay, so then the branch that goes north here heads to... Well, we're heading up towards... Okay, so hang on. One thing that I'm noticing, the trees are looking worse and worse all the time, right? So... Yeah, these are proper diseased. Yeah, the trees are dying. (coughs) Pines are dying as we come. We can see the ones up on the bluff are dying, too. That's a very yep. bad sign, and probably means worse than goblins. I mean, as we can see back in the goblin camp, we have those green trees, right? And they're the ones, some of them have been defaced to make the totems, but the ones that haven't are still green. Last this, place we saw pine trees like this is when we had the, the lich factory on top of the hill and the dwarf came. And yes. Yes, exactly the, the kind of uh, infection sort of, you know corruption, desolation situation that we would expect. Oh, we also got some white wood blight over here. Oh, what, up on the bluff? Notice that some of the pine trees have different color bark. Yeah. The white one, that's a disease they get. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Still seeing no evidence of any ruins or any previous occupation. Interesting that the map looks like it shows buildings all over the place. From the look at the map, I'd have expected this place to be lousy with ruins, but it's just not. It's not even lousy with goblins. No, yeah. It's, all right, it's kind of sprinkled with goblins. Okay. Peppered. Peppered, yeah. All right, oh. so... Oh, we got some folks who are drawing aggro now, is that... Oh, okay. Hang on. Make Let's sure see. nobody's in danger. We are, no, they're just... Those two goblins uh, are just running broke, off. Where are they, they broke going? The chain, but uh, I'll, I'll get on foot anyway. What were those two goblins doing? They just ran around the corner. They just... Uh, I think they were chasing one of our guys, but... Uh, oh, were they? They? Reached, uh, they reached a path of no return and doubled back. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. All right, so this <laughs> this is a a little yeah, hollow this is the closest in here. thing we've seen to a building here. Yeah. Oh, look at that! I don't think I've seen one of those before. Ooh, no wait, I think we have. 
the giant rib cage? Yeah, I think. I haven't seen the rib cage before. It's usually pelvis fires. Yeah. No, but this like bat creature. I think we've seen it somewhere. I can't think of where. I can't either. Hum a few bars, maybe I can fake it. Yeah. I'm the And are those Oryx skulls? I think they are. Yeah. These guys are from the North Downs. Yeah. Maybe we've seen it up there. I don't know. Maybe. But, um... They haven't... North Downs is less goblins and more orcs than Angmarim, isn't it? And Hillman, yeah. Yeah. This is definitely goblin. I'm going to dismount, too. Um... Okay. Well, here's one of the things that's interesting about this. It's, so, the tendency of the goblins to create, because this looks more like, especially the way that it's set up on this raised stone in the middle of this hollow, this looks almost like a, like an altar, right? This looks almost like a, a sacred, like a little temple place, right? Yeah. Apart from the fact that they've, you know, set up uh, uh, tents in here, too, and are clearly living here. If it weren't for that, you know, I would say definitely... Uh, looks like they, um, uh, they're they're worshiping here. But the way that this raised rock in the middle is set up makes this look like a a an idol rather than just a like a decorative statue. And its face is is um, goblin like. Um, it's got wings. It kind of looks like it. I mean, it's got the... Po- but it's not goblin pointy ears. I mean, this isn't exactly a goblin. And it does have wings. Yeah, I mean, clearly it has wings, and in that way is unlike a goblin. But my first, Im- my first impulse when I was looking at this was like, this looks like a great winged goblin-like creature. Um, but maybe it's not. Maybe I'm wrong about the ears. It's got pointy, sticky-outy ears like the goblins do. But when the goblins depict goblins' ears, it actually looks even more comical, like a like a, a, a cone head with, like, tr- you know, two different two cones sticking out the side of its head. Because we did yeah. see... Remember the, the goblin altar that had, like, fire glowing up on the inside of it? We saw that in... Um, in the... In, no way, we haven't been to Goblin Town. Well, we've seen like their we've seen like their Sauron scarecrows too, the ones with, you know, kind of scarecrows with armor and a big red eye painted in the Yes, this doesn't look with all the swords. Like that. Yeah, no, this yeah, doesn't yeah, look anything yeah. like that. Looks like maybe it's a Balrog. I know it. <laughs> it it's a Balrog, Karita says. It's because it has wings that she's saying it's a Balrog. Well, it's their vestigial. Right, the vestigial wings. I, I love the theory that Balrogs have vestigial wings. Nothing does vestigial wings show. quite like immortal creatures that don't procreate. But anyway... Um, one for showing, one for glowing. <laughs> anyway, uh, if those aren't ears, could they be horns? Is yeah, this that's a... what I was... It's, it's coming from the middle of the forehead, so maybe horns. What if this... What if this is a... Like a, a warg rather than a goblin. A flying wolf? I'm trying to look at it from the side, because, of course, we do get all these wolf decorations 
um, on the rest of their stuff. Could this be some kind of wolf thing? The wings, a little weird, I admit, but... Uh, and it, it has to be wings. Look, they tied things onto the main stick to make it look like... Wings, the, yeah. The fingers, yeah, the bird's yeah. fingers. Yeah, exactly. Or, or really bat wings is what this looks yeah, like it's emulating. Yeah, exactly. That's You've got the thing sticking like the... Yeah, like the wing fingers, right? Like a and bat's wing tied fingers. tied on. Yeah. With leather not quite stretched in between, but yeah, it's definitely got back. So this is what? If it, okay, so let's why are why not just cut to the chase and say this is a bat, the great bat. It's an image of Thoringuethel. Maybe Ooh. it's the it's the image of the Nazgul's new mounts. Maybe they know about what's coming. Maybe. Maybe they've heard rumors about it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I see maybe not the back maybe, of my own head. I don't but... know if these are Mordor goblins either. These well, might just be. And, you know, there's no evidence of that either, by the way. I mean, do you see anything that suggests the eye? No, there's, they're usually slapped all over the place. Yeah. I don't see the eye. I don't see your right. I don't see any little Sauron statues or altars or totems or whatever they are. They're called Blue Crag Mountains, which implies they're from the Blue Mountains. Right. They're they're native out here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're presumably independent. Huh. Do they have... Uh, no... I just realized its tongue is sticking out. The statue's tongue? Yeah, it's got kind of this big red bath thing coming out at the end. Oh. Maybe... It kind of does have a tongue. Do these guys have a... Do these guys have a... Um, an allegiance with... Uh, Ivar, Bloodhand, and... Um, Scrim... Scrimjar at all? Um, it's related to that. Yeah, I don't know. Scorgrim, yeah. Scorgrim, thank you. Couldn't, I was thinking, I'm pretty sure that's a Harry Potter name I said. Rufus um, Scrim- <laughs> Scrimger? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, the yeah. Minister yeah. of Magic was, in Book yes, 7? The, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Deathman says there's a whole storyline based around a gaunt lord and Scorgrim. Yeah. Yes. Maybe this is representation of him or his gaunts, his gaunty, jaunty fellows. Maybe. Deathman, it could be an abstract impression of the soul of Sarah Oakheart. That is always possible. Hate Sarah Oakheart. Except if it were Sarah Oakheart, she wouldn't be attached to the ground. She would be running towards danger. Uh, but. Anyway, stick. Yeah. Going, oh, mercy me. Yeah. How does that happen? Now, attack things with a spoon. It could be, um, as uh, Roni was suggesting, I was thinking of that too, the the Merivale, uh, the bat yeah. vampire creatures. I don't think there are any of those anywhere nearby, though, are there? They're up in Angmar, I know, but they're not, no. I think, around here. Um, and Yeah, we see them first in Angmar. Right, and what's more, I would expect even a crude depiction of a Merivale, I would expect to be more 
female than this statue is. Because the Merivale are fairly aggressively female. In appearance. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. Anyway, let's keep going. So, no evidence that the... Wait a second. What's up on that hill over there? Something up there. Due yes. south of us. Is that a tent? That might, Is that, that a house? Might be the, I think it's another camp up there. There's a, there's a oh. big sort of circular... Um, it's like a winding... It's a winding road that runs interior of... Uh, looks like like a holodeck volcano, but there's stairways all around the inside or something, or oh, a pathway all great. around the well, inside. Now we got to get up there, so, okay. Yeah. We'll keep looking around. A lot of switchbacks and wrong turns. You know, I think this I'm like now back. asking myself, did I ever come down here? Like, I don't even remember this place. Oh, hang on, what's, oh, this, yeah, this is, is the wall. This is where we come in. This is the entrance. This is the entrance the from Gondolin. Okay, so this is the dwarf... Yes, this is the dwarf wall built to defend against the goblins and whatnot. Okay, so let's not go that way yet. I want to. I want to. I want to finish exploring down here. But okay, so the first thing we. Oh, here's our path up. Great. Let's go up. One of the paths up. <laughs> I mean, I must have been here because. No, I mean, I know I did, because there's an exploration deed, and I did the completionist Arid Lewin at one point, so... Um, oh, yeah, because there are lots of spots inside here. Yeah. But I have no memory of this place, like... I'm on Fink. Just like Gandalf and Moria. Yep. I have no memory For of this place. me in a parking lot. Okay. So... A heavily fortified, except no gates. Yeah. That's good. Palisades in front of stone walls, but nothing barring the actual path up. Yeah, this strikes kinda, me as a great waste of logs right these here. These slicers are going to stop you in your path. I guess. Still, why build a palisade when there's a perfectly good cliff face right there? Uh, yeah. Okay, more goblin camps. Okay, this looks like the heart of... Oh, we've got a... What is this? What, a big lean-to? What is this? A little... It looks like a stable. It's a little... Except there's nothing in it. Hmm. <laughs> Are these goblins any fiercer? They don't have anything on them, do they? Oops. Oh, dear. Mm. Shielder. They have Slicers. shields. Slicer and shielder. But they're still only level ten, right? So this it's not like this is a higher they're, level they're, area. They're These are premiums. elites. But, yeah, but elites, they are elites, sorry. yeah. 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 So they're just darn annoying. Right. Really tough level eleven creatures. Yep. Okay. This is meant to go in a group. We're doing this at level. Yeah. Oh, oh, wait, wait, here's the chief. And he's wearing one of those masks with the horns on him. Oh, wait, where is he? He's over here? He's up, he disappeared. Maybe uh, he'll respond? Maybe. 
But he was over here? Yeah, he was over here. He'll probably respond in a minute. Okay. Or several minutes. I don't know. Let's see. Let me look around then into the distance while I'm up here. Okay, so this is... Right, these you can see where we through. came in from here. Right, so that's right. That's looking back out. Yes, the pass that we came through. And then, ooh, to the south there be ruins. Oh, oh yeah. and what look like pillars and something glowing in the distance. I think that's the house up behind the vineyard. Maybe. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. But, okay, we finally have. And from I've... here, it's dwarvish. Pretty clearly dwarvish ruins. Yep. From a distance, that's exciting. I don't think I noticed that before. Okay. All right, and what look like columns, or they might possibly be pine trees. And he's still not regen? He's a chicken. Oh, wait. No, oh, somebody just regen because I just got detected. Uh, but I guess it's like knock on his door or something? Oh, no, he's down the cliff. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's probably not that important. I'm well, not... But I, my only point is he was wearing uh, uh, a, a helmet that covered uh, a helmet and visor that covered his face that gave him the look of sort of a snarling creature with horns. Oh, so we want to see if he was emulating the Thurin Gwethel statue. That was my. Yeah. That was my goal. Is We've he... seen this visor and helmet before on Goblin. Right. Looks kind of slightly avian. Why do you think they have those bits sticking out from behind the... Like the things that kind of look like the corks that stick out of Frankenstein's neck for some reason? Those might be pegs holding the masks onto the tree. I think they're Just two different elements. totally practical? Notice these are very bat-like faces. Too. I think they're supposed to be wolves, but they... Works, See, but, but they have very bat-like faces. If you look at the shape of the of the forehead and ears on these wolf faces, I think that's the same as was on that winged statue. There yeah, he is. So oh, he's work. back. Where is he? There he yeah, is. Don't yeah, even kill him. Nobody kill him. Uh oh, he gonna, aggroed I can take on the hit. him. Yeah. Uh, he, I can take the hit. It's fine. okay. But but yeah, look at the horns. Uh oh, links. Or, yeah, faces. no, I see it. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not, it's the, not same. the same. Not quite the same. Yeah, okay, I was. I, only noticed it as he was disappearing. No, but it dust, is interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Looking at this, this like, um, you know, pentagonal yeah. brow to ear thing. I'm convinced now that this is the same face. Uh, so if these are wolves, that's a wolf. But it was like a wolf bat hybrid thing. Yes. Which, okay. That's so metal. It, yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool. So I'm just enjoying looking at these wolf faces in profile and the peg okay, holes so the, here on the sides. We can either keep going up or we can go down to the main we, road we, and go we south where we up? saw the ruins. It goes higher than this? Uh, maybe not. No, oh, I was thinking of a different hill. Well, it's, it's all see, looks it's, the same. It's a bit like Goblin Town, but like an open air version. <laughs> an open air version of Goblin Town. Let's keep going around and make sure to see if it's a dead end over here. Oh, this is going to be a very dead end in a second. Oh yeah, no, this is a that's a that's a sheer drop. Yep. Okay. I bet we could make that. No, nah, it's an incline. We can make that. No problem. 
chances of sliding off and plunging to our deaths fairly high. Okay. So you just gotta skateboard, skate down it on a shield like an elf. Yeah, like you do. Okay. So I'll continue down this path and then I'll see if I can go down and check out those dwarvish ruins. They're probably not going to get to Gondaman itself, but that's okay. Wrath to Rag is a yeah, no, this is rad. An important know area here. Also, I have to admit, I'm surprised we're finding nothing but goblins. And the reason I'm surprised is because of the trees. Right? I wouldn't have thought that. Hey, look a bat! Ooh, bat with raggedy wings. Ah. It's diseased. This is a diseased bat. Okay, so the bat is diseased. The okay. trees are diseased. This has all of the markings of a like a a seriously corrupted by evil area. I would have expected to find, you know, Lich the pin. unquiet dead or yeah, like oh, we, we, uh, not too far from the unquiet a, dead. A white factory or something. Well, they're yeah. no. I mean, the unquiet dead are up across the road. They're quite a ways from here. The ones yeah, that we've been suppose. looking at. I mean, yeah. As the crow flies are kind of far away. Right, we're getting right, some um, spiders, and spiders are not a good look. But again, I wouldn't have thought that goblins, spiders, and certainly not cave claws, would have ended up leaving a you know stain of corruption on this land. Cave oh, is, claws, is, especially. Is this the is this the uh, spider den? Ooh, I assume southern barricade. Kind of looks like it. Yeah. The southern barricade is presumably that wall. Yeah. I just want to make sure there's nothing interesting in here. I mean, I spiders, think we can get obviously. up this ramp here. Uh, notice how white and blanched everything is. Yeah. It's not just the spider webs; like the like the plants are bleached white. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Look, we can go up and up here. Mm-hmm. Go up either way. Let's start over here. I seem to recall this is where I got a lot of my first broken legs after I mastered the stairs in Kalandam. Man, I just... It must just be a long time ago that I did this because... Man, I just... Oh, running out of road. Okay. So this looks back along up onto the the Goblin Hill. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if we can actually get on top or view it much. Yeah, see, it's all blocked off. We can't get in there. Let me go the other we way. Act- we I'm pretty sure what, we're, what we can just see across the hill to the east over here. What, what direction am I... Yeah, I think that's... Over there is where the... Uh, um, those, you know, the, those houses with towers and stuff up behind the vineyard? Yeah. I think we're up there. Oh man, so. we can't climb. I thought we could climb up this way. We can't climb up this way? Yeah. Nope. Oh well. Okay. Alright, well again, no evidence of um, any building no. or anything. And no elf presence. Uh, which is one of the things that I wanted to see if the elves had ever been in here. But no, it looks like we've exhausted the... Uh, there was no gigantic, um, like, spider boss in there. Nope. It's a rare 
Why are they called snow spinners? I think maybe just the area we are. Maybe that's why it's wide in there. It's supposed to be snow. It's supposed to be snow. Oh, and we can't get in here? Yeah, we can't get in. No way. It's blocked off. Oh, here I was saving that for last because I was assuming we could do it. Oh, man. They gave us quite a lot of it for not being able to get in there. Oh, that's cruel. That is cruel. Don't they know there's professors who need to get in here? Oh, is this isn't the path to the Grey Havens. I'm looking at the map where it says Grey Havens just past where we are here. What? No. Yeah, there's a there's a fair bit of mountains in between, I think. But... Huh. Huh. Well, okay, we can at least look at this structure, which is clearly dwarvish. It's called the Southern Barricade, and it looks like a gate, and it has very suggestive spikes which face outwards in our direction here. Um, yes. Thus, like the other one did that we saw, the newer and better maintained one. Uh-huh. The construction of this is like the... Con- so, okay, I noticed two things. Thing number one, the what? the stone, like the, the, the brownish stone with the blue highlights, mm-hmm. is just like the, if I'm remembering correctly, just like the stone of the, um, the new works down at the, um, what do you call it, the port, right? Yes. Hell, uh, I forget what it's called. Um, uh, but anyway... Kilidor, yeah, Kilidor, the, the Kilidor, the, what what was built by uh, Thorin and Thorin's people during Thorin's time, right? But uh-huh. you'll notice what's in front here, and that is the st- stub ruins of not one but two green obelisks of exactly the same kind as uh-huh. that green obelisk up in the human area that is still standing. Eaten by ivy. Look at that. Yes, also like that other green obelisk. So, this suggests to me one of two things. Either, now my speculation at the time was maybe that green obelisk was a human obelisk, though from a later period, presumably, than the ones who built the barrows in the first place. Yes. But, um, that if one of two things must be true, either that's not the case, and these are actually dwarvish, and so that other one is dwarvish too, which would not be unreasonable because it's not too far from other dwarvish constructions. Yes. Or this wall here, the barricade itself, was built at the site where these two obelisks were. So original, because those obelisks are older than the other stone. So they're like old road markers? From the yes. So it, there used to just be two obelisks here. And then at the site of these two obelisks, the dwarves came and built this wall. I feel um, like I'd have to see a more completed one to get an idea. But... Oh, cool. Deathman is giving us the the, uh, the deed text here. Wrath uh, Tarag is Cinderin for Mountain Path and once run through its canyon, the road... From the Blue Mountains to the Grey Havens, yes. However, now its southern gate is sealed off and dwarves guard its northern entrance at the northern barricade. Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, now its southern gate is sealed off. So they've sealed this off. Right, so that would suggest that the sealing off of this barricade was done during Thorin's time. Uh That's why we have this new stone, which does then still leave the green obelisks 
open to question. Now, um, let me see. Hang on. Let's go back and I want to. I want to. I want to look at the path more clearly. So I want. I want to get a little altitude here. Sure. The the construction over here actually reminds me very much of Ohthricar in North Downs, the right. little mining community they set up. Uh, just there's there's a lot of elements that are similar in especially the build of that overpass that mm -hmm. you looks you feel like you're going to bang your head on if you go under it. Yes. Okay. All right. In particular, what I wanted to see were these pillars that we could see all the way over from the Goblin uh -huh. Mountain. The pillars that line the path on the way up. Oh, look, also, there's um, two... We, we have the two obelisks of greenstone on the ground, but we also have two smaller green obelisks on top of each of the two towers up there. Right. Like, you mean flanking the sides of the barricade, right? Yeah, flanking the sides of the barricade. It's part of the, the post. Right. We have so, the same stone. And those, I think, are... I think that we see things like that down in the port city, too. Mm -hmm. That was the ones that had the new... They were old architecture that had new stuff on them. Exactly. Exactly. Just as the square post, again, with those vertical blue lines in them, um, underneath those smaller green obelisks that you're looking at, Yeah. that's the same kind of new style construction that we saw down in the port. The hard part is we need to find one where there's no architecture by men to find out if this is purely a dwarfish thing or if this is a combination of men and dwarfish architecture. And I don't think we're going to get that answer until we're in Moria or possibly yeah. um, Thorns Gate. Maybe. If, well, what, what I'm looking at right now in, in particular are those, again, those pillars, the tall pillars that flank the path, flank the yes. road on the way up to that pass there. Um those look like it might actually have been arched. What I'm wondering, and I dearly wish I could get closer to the base of one of those pillars, yeah. is I'm wondering if those are elvish. Because, I mean, this is the path to the Grey, ha to the Grey Havens. Yes. So I'm, I'm trying to see. There's that one up on the hill. Let me see if I can up my graphics. Can't see the base of it. It's got That's a star thing on it. Okay. Let me see. All right. Uh, I think it's dwarvish. Yeah, I'm not really seeing any elven thing on there. Um, as the the image is reloading, I could see the column that's lying sideways and broken near the entrance. I could see it a little better, and it just does look like... It's hard to say. Yeah. Um... It looks dwarvish to me. It's got the same knot work that's on the um, the northern barricades. But I think look at so. That little, look at that little sort of uh, decoration around the side, uh, the one uh, the one up the hill just a little. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it that's what that I was looking at, that like star... It has that mushroom underside. Yes, that, like, yes. That like what we saw in New Yes. Yes, it does. But again, most of it... Even the wall behind that up there with the arches, the angular arches and things looks very dwarvish. Yes. I'll have to see if they got those mushroom bottoms on anything. I think that those pillars were made by dwarves. 
So this was all a dwarf thing. I don't know to what end. And again, I don't know when. This barricade seems to have been built recently, in the last couple hundred years. Those obelisks, the green, big green obelisks, look much older. But, you know, I can't really tell. Who knows what significance this mountain pass might have had to the First Age men um, and early Second Age men who lived here. It's not um, like it's going to keep you on the road because you're in the middle of a, a you're you're in a carved cleft in the hill. Right. It's yeah. Like no. I mean, it's not like off. you need yeah a guardrail or something. But um, unless uh, they provide light at night or something, like some kind of could be lamps, dwarfish street lamps. Could just be kind of decorative. I mean, if there were arches that stretched between those pillars, you know, it's quite going possible. Some place pretty important. Right, which, you know, off towards the Grey Havens, I guess. Why would the dwarves think that's important? I'm not sure. Um, But what I'm not seeing is any... Well, okay. If those are dwarvish construction, I have to think the pillars. I have Uh to think that what we're seeing is two different layers of dwarvish historical architecture too. The newer one by the... Because I can't imagine that Thorin and Company... I keep calling them Thorin and Company, like Thorin's people. You know, the exiles of Erebor um, put up these columns on the way to the Grey Havens. Because if they did, why would they then block it off? That doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. Because it's Thorin's yeah. people who seem to have blocked it off. Mm-hmm. Um, the central part of the gate seems to be more aged than the other parts, but I'm not... I think that that might just be because it's the part that's, like, torn down and made into a barricade. Yeah, I think it's a bit roughed up. Yeah, exactly. I think it's roughed up, not necessarily ancient. Unlike these bar- these obelisks, the tops of which aren't even any longer in evidence. Like, it's almost like they could have used the top half of that obelisk that was lying around to carve out the new little obelisks that they put up on the top. Yeah, that's what they it feels like. Them. Maybe they came across the obelisks and the bottom, the tops had fallen off and they said, well, waste not, want not. Exactly. Stuck it up there. Nice little green stone for obelisks. We can use those. I'm pretty sure dwarves would be the type not to let good stone go to waste. Yeah. They'd repurpose those in a heartbeat. Especially if it was old and special. And if it had significance to the men, they probably wouldn't care all that much. Okay, here's one thing that we can see. This isn't... I think... I think right here, this diagonal beam is one of those pillars. Yeah, it is. I You can see before, well, the image is loading. When I changed my graphics, you could see it was a column falling on its side before, the, before yes. it finished loading. I'm pretty sure that is. In which case, so this is the closest we can get. We can't see the base from here, but it certainly not does not look elvish. Look. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly doesn't look elvish. Even the way that it's squared off makes it look more dwarvish. Yeah, yeah. And the sort of the geometric patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um... But yeah, it's definitely a dwarven load. Look at the hexagonal paving stones. Yes, yes. Right. Exactly. 
Yep. Yeah, Dwarvish Road, which the dwarves have blocked off, and the dwarves erected, older dwarves probably, erected the pillars, and then the dwarves, the later dwarves, the Longbeards, came and blocked off the path. For reasons best known to themselves. Okay. Eh, they're not the kind to share. Right. That information. Right. Okay. All right. Well, next time we will start at Gaunt, though, of course, we've again missed Thrassy's Lodge, so I suppose we should run around <laughs> through Thrassy's Lodge and then get to Gondaman so next, to next time. We've been skirting around the edges of Gondaman for like a month and a half now, but um, we can... Uh, Toodling with dwarves. Yeah, we can do that next time. All right, so I'll let everybody go. It is getting late. Thanks, everybody. Right. This has been a fun exploration of an area of the game I utterly forgot about. Uh, so that's been cool. Um, and more, maybe, who knows, next week maybe we'll even get to Gondaman. Thanks, everybody. Aww. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.